Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands. Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. And all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com slash aware. Blog Talk Radio. November 8th, 2017 edition of Don't Let It Go Unheard, and this is where we discuss news, politics, and culture from an individualist perspective. I'm your host, Amy Peekoff, and if you run over to don'tletitgo.com, which is my blog, you'll see the title of today's show. It's America First. I put it in quotes because I want to talk about America First as Donald Trump, I I was going to say conceives it, but conceives is too generous a term. Um, uh, What it means as stated by, how about that, Donald Trump, America first, and then versus so-called just war theory. And I always put just in scare quotes when we're talking about just war theory. This title was inspired by uh, Trump tweeting about North Korea, but I'm also going to tie into this some things about the effect of just war theory in general on the military and even, you know, kind of more broadly, the Air Force and its defaults with respect to the things it could have done, the Air Force could have done to prevent the Sutherland Springs massacre. So what's interesting is that we're going to end up tying this show around some thoughts that I've had because I've been going through this, um, something called the KonMari process, there's a woman, a Japanese woman, very cute, by the name of Marie Kondo. And she wrote this book, The Life-Changing Magic of Tidying Up. I actually put in the program notes for the show, her second book, which is, I think probably you could read it in a self-contained way. Uh, It's called Spark Joy. And then it gives sort of more technical details. What she talks about is how you can quote tidy up, meaning how you can go through all of your possessions and decide which things to keep and which things to discard. And hers is a, you know, kind of very intuitive sort of emotional based method of doing this. I come to it. First of all, I have a friend, a good friend who has taken a training class. And so she's training to be a Kamari consultant. So she's going through this with me. I'm sort of a Guinea pig, but I'm somebody who has thought about this sort of thing and, and, what criteria you would use to decide, you know, what to keep and what to discard if you got just too much junk, right? And for 
Marie Kondo, she asks, you know, you say you're supposed to go through each of your possessions and, and hold them and touch them and, you know, think about them and ask, does it spark joy? That's the question. I don't necessarily think, you know, and again, I'm coming as an objectivist, as a philosopher who doesn't want to just go by emotion. I don't think necessarily that asking that question about the emotion is a bad question to ask, but I think you need to also kind of realize why does it or does it not spark joy for you? And that's not necessarily the end of the inquiry. So for example, the, you know, the broom or the vacuum cleaner or whatever, isn't necessarily going to spark joy, but it's a utilitarian item, right? So I, I don't take, you know, Kondo's method completely without sort of modification. She talks about utilitarian items too. So it's not like she doesn't, but, you know, I bring other ideas to it in any event. I do think that she brings a valuable contribution to this. Um, you know, whenever you've got a situation in which there's options, you know, flavors of ice cream or anything else, does it spark joy is a good question to ask, you know, and if it doesn't, then, then don't have it around. Right. So going through this process and one item that I came across is this old Air Force Academy sweatshirt because I taught at the Air Force Academy at, at the Air Force Academy for three years. And there's already been some mixed feelings I've had about it. You know, there was some, and there's always, you know, in any place, a mixed feeling about a, a place that, that you leave. Philosophically, the department people at the philosophy department, the Air Force Academy, very liberal, very much into so-called just war theory and there were some problems associated with that. So, you know, you know, I look at this sweatshirt. Does it spark joy? Okay, Ray, already not so much. And then after the Sutherland Springs massacre, then you look at this item and you realize that it's the Air Force that might have prevented this from happening using laws already on the books, laws that they had multiple opportunities from what I've been reading, multiple opportunities to implement this law, get this scumbag's name onto the register and make sure that he could not buy a gun. You can bet that I look at this sweatshirt and say, okay, no way it does not spark joy and it, it's going out. So I was going through this process and um, I also put in the program notes, if you want to, check it out. I've got this old blog that I haven't touched for a long time, but it's some ideas that I have along these lines. I call it selfish minimalism. So go check that out if you're interested in the topic. I think Tammy's going to do some work on it, maybe hoping to give a lecture at a conference and stuff. So if this is the kind of thing that interests you, sort of, you know, stay tuned. Uh, but yeah, so I was going through this process yesterday and in, you know, in relation to that particular sweatshirt, had some ideas about the connection between just war theory and what caused the Air Force to have these defaults. Uh, there's other factors too, but I think that the permeation of just war theory in the military community for the last several decades has, you know, has, has had an effect. So I'll talk about that. Uh, the one thing I warn you, so I go through this whole thing yesterday and accomplished a lot. I mean, Tammy and I just got through a lot of stuff. And so then I decided, okay, I'm going to go treat myself. And so I go to this place. I've been kind of putting off going to this place. It's not too far from where I live. And I've been putting off going there. Uh, I was hoping to take somebody very special there. I still hope to do that, but I've decided, okay, I'm going to go and treat myself and go to this place because it just has this fabulous view of the sunset. So I go there and I have a glass of wine and watch the sunset and eat and everything. And even though I did eat and I drank my water and stuff, I'm just such a lightweight. So I'm a little bit 
impaired today. I'm a little bit hungover because, yeah, from a glass of wine. I know it's lame, but I just I don't drink that often. And it, it wasn't like I was drunk. I was able to drive and everything, but just somehow yeah, it gets me, keeps me from sleeping very well and all that stuff. I'm just a lightweight. So that's my disclaimer. But I do believe I'm going to be able to tie around this you know, connection with the Air Force Academy and my discussion of some of my experiences there and thoughts on just war theory, these different topics, you know, Trump tweeting about North Korea and trying to bring China in and America first, of course, you know, I had some thoughts on that this morning. I'll share with you. Uh, And then also, like I said, bringing in this, this idea of just war theory and what it's done to the military community that may have helped to, you know, result in the defaults of the Air Force with respect to the scumbag in Sutherland Springs. Apparently, you know, military in general will sometimes not report crimes, that this is sort of a trend. It's not just some fluke accident. Um, if you go to the program notes at the blog, don'tletitgo.com, you will see also at the beginning after the you know, the Sutherland Springs atrocity daily wire put this article out there where they talk about, you know, the Texas shooter, he was an atheist and he mocked believers. And in part, they were doing that in reaction to some people who were speculating that it was his Christianity that was to blame. So you say, well, no, it wasn't because he was an atheist, right? But there was this backlash that is like they wanted to then blame atheists. And so I immediately came back with this. And, you know, Ben Shapiro, really respect him, really like him. There's just this tension sometimes about, you know, like abortion. I haven't really broached that with him at all, but probably should at some point. Um, The other thing is, again, this idea of, you know, religion versus atheism. And he wants to promote his religion. Of course, I would like to promote my philosophy, which happens to be an atheist philosophy. So there's this, uh, you know, kind of contradiction. But there was this tone among some of the right wing commentators when they found out that he was, or at least he was sort of an atheist. I think he was very confused. Uh, But, you know, that he had a whole lot of, uh, you know, mocking of believers and, and promoting, quote, atheism. I don't know how you promote atheism per se. But you know, I had to answer. So I says, I say, just as guns or lack of gun laws are not to blame, neither is atheism. And so I, w- I want to, you know, I wanted to, you know, kind of tie into the logic of guns don't kill people. Atheism doesn't kill people either. And this has resulted in this huge discussion on Twitter. Believe it or not, I tweeted this, what, two days ago, in the early morning two days ago. And boy, did I get a whole bunch of vitriol back and everything. And then a lot of people, I haven't been in the discussion since then, but I was in the discussion quite a lot actively at the beginning and, you know, hitting all the different points. And then once you've hit all the basic points that you can hit, then there's no point in me continuing. But there are people who have gotten in the battle and they're debating the existence of God out there on Twitter. So if you want to join in, you can go ahead and and do it. But, you know, I thought it was important to, draw the parallel that yeah guns they're not to blame there's no motive inherent in a gun a gun is this instrumentality that you can choose to have and it can be used for good and it can be used for evil 
atheism is just a lack of belief. It doesn't then say anything about what you positively believe, what your philosophy is. And so the fact that there's non-belief doesn't mean automatically that therefore you are going to be a murderous scumbag. Uh, there are people out there on Twitter, I'm hearing from some of them, and I'm thinking, oh my gosh, I'm you know making myself some target because I'm an atheist now, and they think that all atheists are prone to go become mass murderers or something. There's an extra premise in there, and that premise is that you believe it is impossible to have morality that would condemn an atrocity like that without religion. And that is the, you know, thing that I came in and did some battle on and, you know, talked about, for example, just in broad brushstrokes, Rand, uh, you know, stating this fundamental alternative of life and death, plus the nature of us as human beings as giving rise to a morality that's based on reason. Uh, and that, that this morality would include a prohibition on the initiation of force of any kind, certainly a, a mass murder of you know, innocent civilians. Yes, even whether they're at a church or not. I mean, it's ridiculous. But yeah, Rand was an atheist, and Rand had a solid morality, a, a good secular argument for it that would prohibit uh, would condemn any atrocity like that. And so I was making that clear that anybody who has this idea, oh, well, you know, it, his, his atheism is to blame. You are counting on an additional premise that there is not out there any way to substantiate, to justify a morality that would prohibit that atrocity. That's an assumption you're making. And because I have given you, you know, the, I point people in the direction of such a morality that would do that, you've got to go look at that and you've got to argue against it before you would be justified in blaming atheism per se. Uh, you know, I'm sure that there are other secular moralities. I happen to think that Rand's is the correct one, but you would have to, you know, because there are people who offer these moral codes, you would have to argue against all those and, and talk about exactly why they're ridiculous. You can't just go around asserting, oh, the only way to have morality is through religion. And that's the sort of thing I was trying to fight there. If you want to get in the discussion, go right ahead. Uh, in the chat room, I'm asked about my views on abortion. I'm going to get to that towards the end, because in the end of the show, it turns out, again, tied into this whole thing with the Sutherland Springs atrocity, what we get at the end of this thread is an article that came out of the New York Times, I think yesterday, today, why the tally of the church shootings victims included a fetus. They include a fetus in the tally. So I'll talk some about abortion in connection with that. So as I said, go to the blog, don'tletitgo.com. You'll see the different things I want to talk about. If you want to call in and talk to me, the number at which to do so is 760 888 5817. Again, that's 760-888-5817. So over at the blog, first thing after the couple tweets having to do with atheism and guns and all that stuff, obviously I don't believe that any additional gun laws would be necessary at this point. We, what we've seen is that the existing laws on the books were not followed and I mean egregiously not followed it's 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 just terrible so you know I, I asked people a number of times give me a concrete law that would have helped 
they never had an answer. And I asked two or three different people that, and these people who are, you know, oh, there must be. So I, I was getting it from all sides, right? I'm getting it from the left about the guns, and I'm getting it from the right about religion and atheism and everything else. It was it was a tough morning. So, uh, okay, so let's go over to America First versus Just War Theory. It came in reaction to Donald Trump tweeting. He's been tweeting about North Korea and one of the things that he said was this. He says, hey, anyone who doubts the strength or determination of the U.S. should look to our past and you will doubt it no longer. And immediate thought that came to mind. And thankfully, Twitter has now given me 280 characters with which to answer our president. So this morning, you know, I'm a little tiny bit foggy. It's a little hard to condense when your brain is slightly addled. Uh, I think still this particular tweet would have been hard to do. I don't know if I could have done it in 140 characters. So I say, unfortunately, the past to which one must look to see that this, you know, to see that this is true, that basically we have the resolve, the uh, strength, the conviction, the determination. The past that you would have to look to now is becoming more and more distant. Because where do you have to look, right? You have to look back basically to World War II. What's the culprit here? The culprit is the creep of these just war theory ideas and the altruist morality behind it. What is just war theory? You've probably heard about this. Probably in the you know, sort of public discourse, the thing that you hear is rules of engagement. Rules of engagement and what we've been talking about, a lot of conservatives talk about is the crippling rules of engagement. They come out of this set of views called just war theory. And it goes back, you know, just war theory actually goes back to Aquinas. They, you know, they trace it and everything. But it has been taught actively in all of our military academies in the United States since the early 70s or thereabouts. Uh, there was a Walzer book, Just and Unjust Wars. In essence, what just war theory will do it, you know, and there's different tenets and things, you know, that talk about last resort and all this stuff that you don't do war until it's the last resort. In essence, you are asked to sacrifice the safety of your citizens, your own national self-interest for the lives of quote, innocent civilians in the enemy country when there is a war. So just war theory will result in the sort of rules of engagement that put our military at needless risk and things like that. Um, and, and so this is where I say, okay, for the last few decades, when we've been involved in a war, you wouldn't necessarily think that people, you know, that we have this determination and resolve that, and strength and everything else as a military why? Because we're not using it. We're forcing ourselves to tie one hand behind our back because of just war theory. And as I said, it's taught in all the military academies. I taught at the Air Force Academy for three years. And I'll just give you an example of one thing that was said by a colleague of mine there. I saw him you know, talking to a whole bunch of cadets. This colleague said that if the cadets believed that the dropping of the nuclear bombs in Japan or that the carpet bombing in Germany during World War II, that either of those things were okay, were moral, that they didn't belong as officers in the Air Force. Okay? Dent to which this 
just war theory is instilled in the cadets. And this is true, not just at the Air Force Academy, it's true at West Point, the Naval Academy. Uh, one guy who was a supervisor of mine at the Air Force Academy when I was there went on to go then teach at the Naval Academy afterwards. He was consulted, his name is Martin Cook, and he was consulted but unfortunately, by militaries, we were exporting this to militaries all over the world, right? Because other militaries want to know what's the success to American strength in the military. Turns out, by the time they come to recruit expertise from us, the expertise that they're recruiting is actually the stuff that's crippling us. So that's my point behind this tweet is that you have to go further and further back in our history to look at a time in which we have the strength and determination that Trump is talking about. Now, what's the answer? The answer to this just war theory. Trump's answer is to go for something he's calling America first. But because he's unprincipled, he isn't capable of putting America first in the correct way. And so what do I say in the tweet? The answer to this is not an unprincipled America first. It is a principled policy of rational self-interest. And what a foreign policy based on rational self-interest looks like, I will refer you to the many writings of Alain's journal if you want to read more. But in essence, what it says is that if we are in a real war, a war in which you know, we are having force initiated against us, somebody else is an aggressor, then we are entitled to do whatever is necessary to eliminate this risk, the threat, with minimal loss of life and minimal property damage and everything else on our side, that we can actually take into account first our own interests in eliminating this threat. And so, for example, what, you know, a, a sort of an objectivist informed foreign policy, a foreign policy of rational self-interest, what it would say about the deaths of so-called innocent civilians. You know, suppose you had to take out a particular military installation in an enemy country in order to eliminate a threat to you. And, you know, it's a country where a lot of times this is what they do. They know our rules, right? They know that we're going to sacrifice ourselves for so-called innocent civilians. And what they'll actually do is they'll, you know, for instance, put their weapons cache in a hospital, <laughs> basement of a hospital or something. And so that they know we're not going to bomb the hospital. Why? Because there's all those innocent civilians and we have our rules of engagement that won't let us do this based on just war theory. They will take advantage of that. But what a proper foreign policy would do is say that if, you know, you don't have the technology to avoid the deaths of innocent civilians, if it's, if it is necessary for our safety and to eliminate the threat to bomb some particular location, you don't stop doing it because there are some, quote, innocent civilians there. The deaths of those innocent civilians, you know, assuming they're innocent, uh, the deaths of those civilians is on the head of, you know, whoever it is who's in charge of the war in the first place. Um, now, I go further because we've got this jihad war against United States now. And it's not necessarily confined to a particular country or anything else. It's hard to, you know, sometimes name. It's, there's ISIS, but ISIS is not a particular nation. I mean, they, they try to call themselves that, but they're, they're not. So, you know, what do you do in relation to that? One of the things that you do is you would be justified in keeping 
anybody with a colorable risk of being, you know, a part of ISIS out of the country. Don't let those people in to immigrate or work or whatever. Just don't let them in. Uh, Some of those people are innocent. Unfortunately, you are going to have to err on the side of eliminating the risk to us with minimal loss of life on our side. And the people who are prevented from coming here during a time of war, I look at those people as, you know, corollaries of the, you know, the so-called innocent civilians that might die in a, a necessary bombing, a bombing that's necessary to achieve our interests. So that's, that just gives you kind of a sketch of, of just war theory. This is not the sort of thing that Trump is doing now, you know, to Trump's credit, he does happen to be going out there and doing some butt kicking on ISIS. But at the same time, I've read stories where he has sold out, for instance, the Kurds to the Iranians and stuff. So he is not acting in a principled way on American self-interest and looking at those people who could actually be our allies. He's acting in a very pragmatist and unprincipled fashion And the way I actually put it, um, and I did this in a separate tweet because I was thinking, you know, what does America first really mean for Trump? And we can apply this in other areas. It means doing, and, you know, again, put it in the scare quotes, it's America first as espoused by Trump, if you could use that word for him. What does it mean? It means doing whatever is demanded by that subset of Americans to which Trump decides to listen at any given moment. That's really what it is, right? There's some pressure group, somebody that he is trying to please in pure pragmatist style. Because again, I go back to my discussions of pragmatism and William James. James says, the good is that which satisfies demand. The demand can be for anything under the sun. So whatever is demanded by some relevant subset of Americans, of course, we all disagree on a number of things. So it's not like he's going to be able to satisfy the demands of all Americans, but it's really just the issue of something being demanded. And he, as a pragmatist politician, deciding deciding it's his job to satisfy demand, maybe as many demands at the same time as he can, that will get him reelected, of course, has that consequence. But there's no kind of substantive limit on what the demand can be for. It's not principled in any way. It's just People demand it, and therefore it's equally as good as anything else that anybody else might demand. And all you could do is kind of add up the number of people who demand stuff and try to satisfy as many demands as you can at the same time. That's the sort of thing that he's doing with America first. And he does it in all the different realms. It's not just foreign policy. It's economics and everything else. And it doesn't respect the principle of individual rights like a rational foreign policy would and like you know a rational policy of anything else domestic or otherwise so it is it is not an answer it is not the answer you know what is the answer right what is it that we should do about North Korea you've heard me I had a couple times on the show Jean-Luc Espetza who's an expert on North Korea and what we know about North Korea is that it is a huge mess and the huge mess I've talked about with uh, Mr. Spezza in Consequences of Cowardice is a show that I had from August 30th. You go back and listen to it. The upshot is it's a military expert that would have to tell you what you actually do need to do with North Korea 
you would do the best you can with reference to this principle of, you know, a foreign policy of American rational self-interest, where we don't sacrifice others to ourselves, we don't sacrifice ourselves to others. You know, but again, the innocent civilians, the ones who might die when you are getting rid of a threat that is there through no fault of your own, this threat, if that's happening, then of course the lives of those innocent civilians, it's on the head of the initiator of of force. What we've got in the situation of North Korea, unfortunately, is a huge mess that was created because we were cowards way back in the 50s. And that was something that we talked about with uh, Jean-Luc Espetza in that show. So you can go back and look at that. The only thing I wanted to say is that I can't tell you exactly what should be done in North Korea. It's a mess. You would need to refer to experts. I've talked about in the past, I can tell you what won't work. What won't work is being some pragmatist. Uh, In the past, I've talked about it with respect to love. Somebody asked me, because I was saying you can't get love, you know, in the way that Weinstein was out there, you know, forcing himself on on these women. You can't get love. You can't even get real lust, right? That way. Um, and someone turned around and asked me, well, so you know, positively, what is you? I'm the last person you want to ask about that because, unfortunately, I think I've I make a mess of it. Um, so I can't tell you positively. You'd have to go to an expert. Similarly, with foreign policy, you would have to go to an expert to figure out how to best within this principle of a foreign policy of rational self-interest, how to best untangle the mess that is North and South Korea, because we have made missteps. We have not followed this principle in the past, and therefore we have lives of South Koreans at risk. At the same time, we know that appeasement is a horrible avenue and it's not going to go anywhere. If somebody has a great idea about how to do this, I for, for me myself, when I was listening to Jean-Luc on the show, called Mr. Special, I don't know. Um, when I was listening to him, he sounds like he's ready to appease a bit more than I think I would be comfortable with. You know, if you decide, okay, everything's been a mess up until now, but this day forward, we want we want to actually have a principled foreign policy. We want to apply the principle, yes, within the context of the mess, but do the best that we can. I don't think that appeasement is the way to go. What is the way to go is another question. I've got to call him and go ahead and grab it before I continue on with this, uh, you know, what do we do about North Korea thing. Hi, you're on the air. Who's this? Hey, Amy, it's Matt. Hello, Matt. How are you? Good. Hey, I, I think I may have mentioned before that I used to teach military ethics and just war theory. Yes. So, uh, and, uh, we used to use a book by our mutual friend, Bill Rhodes. Okay. Well, Bill, Bill Rhodes is, is he's, he's sort of mixed in this regard. Is he not? Yes. I'd say that uh, he's, mm-hmm. he's on the better side. Mm-hmm. He might be a little mixed, but definitely on the better side. Right. Um, he came to speak to us. Uh, uh, I used to teach at the national defense university. Mm-hmm. And so he actually came. And one time it was interesting because uh <laughs> yeah, yeah, no matter where you are, you always have the inestimable uh, appeal to God uh, as the arbiter of morality. Wait, and, I didn't uh, hear that last part. <laughs> you, as, as what is the arbiter? Uh, God. God. Oh, is God the is the arbiter. Yes, yes. Morality. Okay, right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and so it, it was interesting that uh, his reaction was, "Yeah, you don't need it." <laughs> 
Mm. Yeah, and yeah, he and it took some people <laughs> by uh well, just say by surprise when he said that. Now what so what year was this? What year was this? Okay, so this was after I had fairly extensive interaction with him. So I'm hoping right. that my discussions with him may have had an influence on him. That's pretty cool. Well, that's possible. Um, we never really talked about you. but uh, No, 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 I'm sure. I but, guess... my, you know, I had some discussions with him about, you know, ideas. And, and so I, I was there as an example of somebody who was an atheist and then also had a strong morality. So I'm hoping that had an effect. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Good. <laughs> I also, yeah, it's funny, I also had a student or two who would say something to the effect of without God there can be no morality in my class. Yep. And I'd immediately refer them to Euthypro, which, of course, most of them had never heard of before. And uh, one kid was a kid, well, he was a major at the time. He was headed to the Air Force Academy to teach ethics. And I immediately pointed out to him that if you don't, if you can't answer the the uh, arguments made in Euthyphro that Socrates brought up that you don't have any business teaching any kind of ethics anywhere. Right, right. And and so then did he answer them? No. <laughs> uh, I didn't get the chance to ask if he ever looked it up. I, I pointed him in the right direction, and uh, in class I never got the chance to ask him again uh, to bring that up. The classes I taught were pretty short as far as number of classes. Mm-hmm. And so we had to concentrate pretty heavily on, uh, I would start with basic philosophy and ask about, you know, what ethics is, why do you need ethics, and mm-hmm. uh, uh, try to teach them a little bit about uh, the five branches of philosophy and how they all fit together. And I'd especially try to point out that we have these wars, again, Germany, Japan, and the Taliban in Afghanistan and in Iraq, of course, the Al-Qaeda in Iraq. And I point out to them that in the, the first two cases, we totally changed their philosophy. And in the last two, we didn't. And then point out to say, well, which have been successful. Because now, what do you mean totally by change? What do you mean by change their philosophy? What do you mean by change their philosophy? Well, if you, if you look at Nazism, it uh, it all starts with the fatherland and racism. Uh, mm-hmm. The Soviet Union died out. We didn't have a, a war with them, but they died out too. Uh, theirs was all about class. Uh, in Japan, it uh, again, it was all based on mysticism. All three of those are based on mysticism, and we mm-hmm. kind of crushed the mysticism out of them. We, we crushed the racism of the Nazis, uh, you know, as a mongrel society. Right, but the the way I understand them. it, the way I understand it, and you can correct if I'm misunderstanding the history, is that in those countries, I mean, what what we, you know, you can't really impose a philosophy on anybody. What you can do is you can, you know, do the whole, um, you know, occupy and, and rebuild and insist on the installation of a particular form of government, right, Uh those types of things, you know, an implementation of the right principles of, of government, but that isn't necessarily going to help at all if you have a problem in the underlying philosophical beliefs of the general population. But as I understand it, there were enough people living in Japan and Germany, for example, that 
had a, a decent basic philosophy such that this could actually succeed that you know a, a country that's a democracy or loosely based on rights or something is something that they want versus in the Middle East any efforts to do that are failing because that's not what they want and and there's not enough uh, you know of a population from what i hear there is a substantial minority in Iran that would be amenable to this but we've been ignoring them and not taking advantage of that that's what i is that you know consistent with your understanding or no yeah a whole lot of uh you have a whole lot of uh of accuracy there uh, in nazi germany that was definitely true you had a whole lot of people who were uh, children of the enlightenment say. Uh, mm-hmm. not real close maybe but uh it, much better than other places in japan i wouldn't say that uh, i don't know that they had that many but in both cases, we so overwhelmingly defeated them that they had to rethink their superiority. Right. And and so and, I think and, that and they, yeah, and they had to, they had to rethink the you know success prospects of the ideology that were you know motivating the ones who were at war with us. And and that's the thing right now we ha- we have not at least so far crushed enough of the jihadists to make them think that they're not going to succeed. And, you know, now we have attacks on our shores and things like that as well. In fact, it's been kind of the opposite with the, the apologists. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think George Bush is a, a bad apologist and Obama was worse. And so they never got the, they never got the idea that we did defeat them. And we always tried to make light of it. Right. Right. Yeah, your own book said a lot about that too. He, although he talked about more of the physical crushing, and I I can see that too, and that probably would have been a big part of it, especially when you have people who are very perceptual level and not conceptual level. Yeah, I mean, and from what I understand now, Trump is going after ISIS in Somalia. He's directed that. Is that correct? That was one uh, of the latest things. That. Okay, that, I think that was true. one of the latest things I read. Only point being is that sometimes he is, you know, going after and strongly hitting ISIS, but then other times he seems not to be acting consistently with a foreign policy of American national self-interest. And for example, in sort of, you know, uh, shoving the Kurds under the bus in Iran, or, or excuse me, in Iraq, as I understand it. I agree. Yeah. Definitely. Um, so you would agree with me in terms of the answer to just war theory is not, quote, America first as espoused by Trump, because Trump is, is not principled. If we're going to really have the answer to, you know, this just war theory that's been crippling our military for decades, it needs to be a principled response as well. I, oh, 100%, I agree with that. I don't know that it's just the just war theory that's been doing this. I think, uh, you know, the whole feel for the victim, uh, I don't know how many times I've used the phrase pity for the guilty is treason to the innocent, and people were <laughs> really taken aback by that one. Mm-hmm. Uh, but we have such pit, pity for the guilty that uh, it's, it, which is much more fundamental, I I don't know how we're going to get around that uh, in the near term. That's a very long-term attitude. 
Yeah. Do you, you have any thoughts on what your solution for North Korea would be, by the way? Cool. Go back in time. Yeah. I mean, that's the thing. It, it is a mess made because of past cowardice. And Jean-Luc Espeza, you know, he kind of walked us through different decision points at which we could have taken a different turn and things wouldn't be the big mess that they are now. And that each time we failed to do the right thing, probably out of cowardice, out of avoiding, and now the problem is worse. Well, it's it's interesting you mentioned that. Uh, one of the guys I used to work with, he was a retired four-star general, Gary Luck, um, mm-hmm. talked about this in Korea. And he was talking about in the 90s, he was, the, uh, he was in charge in, in that sphere uh, for a while. Anyway, wow. he made note. Uh, talk about this. I think he even wrote a book. I, I've never viewed his book. I don't know what it's called, but certainly you could look it up. But he talked about how Clinton came within a hairbreadth of going to war in Korea. Mm-hmm. And it, <laughs> he talks about being in this big room with all these people, and he was kind of around the edge. And he knew Clinton uh, somehow from before. And he said he liked him, was his comment. And Clinton was going around the circle and asking people, and they're all shaking their head yes. And finally he turned to General Locke and said, Gary, what do you think? And he said, well, sir, we can sure do it, but just remember it will cost you a million and a trillion. (laughs) Mm. (laughs) That, That one really woke Clinton up. And Clinton gets mad and starts yelling at people, well, why didn't you tell me that? Well, right. How the hell could you not have known that? Is <laughs> the counter argument to that. But uh, that's when they decided not to, because yeah. he had no idea how much it was going to cost, both in terms of lives and and money. And of course, yes. uh, now now we're going to be uh, forced to go into war, and it's going to cost us five billion and five trillion. Yeah, exactly. And and that's the point is that if you continue along the path, which they did have this decision point in the 90s that's what you know Spezza was talking about that too on the show you don't make the decision then the problem just gets worse so right and no question about that uh, the part of the big deal that everybody's always worried about is the artillery that they have uh, near the border near the DMZ just on the north side and Seoul is just going to get hammered and uh, what they have for artillery is going to be especially hard to take out. They have, you know, the super sophisticated James Bond sort of things where the artillery will come out of its hiding place in the side of a mountain, shoot once, go back in to reload. Mm. And uh, and so, you know, that's that's a tough thing to take out. And so, anyway, it's uh, we probably know where a good lot of them are, but it's still, it's going to be difficult, and they're going to get quite a few shots off even before we yeah. take them out. And that's going to cost a lot of lives and be a lot of damage and soul. No, it's, it is it is a huge mess. But what I do know is an unprincipled approach just based on hearing the demands of advisors as proxies for demands of America pressure groups and things like that. That's not the answer. You know, that's what he calls America first is just basically listening to what Americans demand. But that, that's not principle. It's not going to get us to a right answer for sure. Uh, Matt, anything else? I've got to go and take a break here really quick. But um, anything, any well, last words? Sure. If you want to talk, 
if you want to talk more about just war theory, we can do that. There's uh, there, there's uh, the the a lot of it is not that bad, uh, but some of it is. And you say it's the ethics of altruism that is bad. Yes. But, uh, some some of the thought process going through is not quite so bad. Uh, you have the juice and bellow, the use and bellow. Uh, so the justice in starting a war, the justice in fighting one. And, yeah, and it's it's and, the justice in fighting one where the altruist morality has the most influence, as I recall. Well, <laughs> well, the, well the, uh, the justice in starting a war a little bit too, right? Because of this idea of last resort that you should just keep sort of uh, engaging in appeasement as well. Uh, but right. in you know in in terms of defining when you would actually have a just cause, you could have a just cause, mm-hmm. but then the just war theory would still tell you, not only do you have to have the just cause, it's got to be a last resort, and in, it's in that right. last resort that you're sacrificing yourself as well. Well, even worse is the fact that you're not supposed to unless it's for defending or defending somebody else, and you know it's the the turn the other cheek and. Uh, yeah. It, it, it's not and it, and it, it's the thing. It's the thing that always makes us have to have have to have coalitions and things too. You know, we can't just right. assert our own self interest. It's got to be you know a bunch of other people agree that it's okay for us to defend ourselves. Right. Yeah. yeah. Well, thank you. Yeah, when I talk about it in another in connection with the you know the topic of the scumbag in Texas, it's it's going to be a little broader just in terms of the sort of seeping of altruism into the military that I think the teaching of just war theory has helped instill altruism into the military. The, you know, the other factor that I think has done that and probably you would agree with this too, is the people in the military, I think have gotten more religious in particular in Colorado Springs, there's a huge religious community circulating the air force Academy and stuff. Very, very, uh, religious evangelical some and, and, and things. And I think it, that that maybe hasn't helped worse. either. Hmm? It, the, the Air Force is much worse than anybody else about that. And I, right. I don't right. know why. It must be a localized phenomenon. Just like you say, there are uh, too many people showing up who are overtly religious and creeping into the thing. Uh, yeah, well particularly be. there at Colorado Springs. I mean, it was it was a huge thing. I don't know if it's still as as much of a battle. I was not myself, you know, sort of like in the atheist club and really active as a quote atheist, but I was acutely aware of how much, you know, if if you were really going to be part of the in crowd and the air force Academy at Colorado Springs, you should be going to whatever church it was that they all went to. I forget the name, but yeah. Anyway, well, thank uh, you, Matt. Do you know, Mikey Mikey Weinstein? I know the name. He, uh, he oh, yeah. Is he the, the older retired professor? Uh, you no, know, he was for a while. He's a lawyer, actually. Uh, his son, I think it was a son, or maybe even two. Oh, yeah. Okay. He was part three. of the battle about the religious uh, influence yes. there, right? Yes. Okay. Yeah, I remember I'd, that. I'd yeah. encourage anybody who wants to learn more about that to do so. It's just quite interesting. Yes. And anytime Excellent. you can go listen to Mikey, uh, it'd be a good thing. Mikey Weinstein, right? Okay. Thanks very much for calling in, Matt. And You're we welcome. will at some point uh, talk again. I appreciate you listening. 
Let me go ahead and take a quick little musical interlude here, and I'll be right back. Okay, we are back, and what I've been talking about so far really is this discussion of America first as Donald Trump espouses it. I wouldn't say conceives it because I don't see him as conceptual. Uh, Ankar Gatte, by the way, has a piece out of ARI talking about Trump as anti-conceptual. I recommend checking that out. I should have stuck it in the in the notes. But in any event, America first for Trump, what is it? It's based on the demands of whatever pressure group in the United States, he's deciding to listen to at the moment, how he thinks he's going to get reelected, et cetera. Um, And my point is that his idea of America first in foreign policy is not going to solve the problem with North Korea. You know, he's saying that we have this history of determination and strength in our military. And my you know, tweet was about the fact that in order to find that history of determination and strength, you have to go way far back to World War II. Why? Because just war theory has crippled us, crippled us ever ever since then. We have not asserted America's self-interest in a rational, principled way for a very long time. That would be the answer. As I was talking with Matt there, applying that principle in the messy context of North and South Korea is a difficult thing, but appeasement, that is, is going to be a problem. What should you do? The article that I saw this morning from New York Times is that Trump is thinking of relying on China, Korea. And it, it's really interesting. You know, they, they say, well, why it may not work and that in effect, the president, you know, President uh, Xi at, uh, in China is not willing to do this. Um, you know, to actually change its relationship with North Korea in any fundamental way. Trump wants China to stop selling, uh, for example, oil to North Korea. He also wants China to close down North Korean bank accounts. And he also wants China to send home tens of thousands of North Koreans who work in China. That's helping to prop up North Korea. So you could see why he would want them to do it. And, what he thinks he's going to be negotiating in exchange for that. It's really funny. And when I, when I saw this headline, I figured, okay, yeah, what he thinks he's going to negotiate is, is that he's not going to come in with his punitive trade policies towards China. Remember during the election, he was saying how our trade relationship with China is horrible and it's all lopsided and he wants to come in and, you know, put punitive tariffs and everything else. And, um, you know, what do do we know from basic economics is that if China is doing anything basically short of intellectual property theft, for example, because we know that there is intellectual property theft in China, and insofar as any of the products that they would be selling us would be produced 
as a result of stealing intellectual property. Okay, we should boycott those. We should not accept those. We should that, they, then we should have a trade barrier if whatever they're doing involves theft. But suppose it's you know they prop up their currency in certain ways, or they have other you know kind of trade restrictions on us and everything. We know from basic economics that we, as Americans, none of us is going to gain by putting up additional trade barriers with China. As I said, I, I carve out that exception for intellectual property violations. If China is violating intellectual property rights, then you would refuse to import any products that counted on that violation. You know, uh, But other than that, let China you know, prop up their currency or do all their stupid things because they're hurting themselves by controlling the economy the way they are. Let's free it up here. Now, Trump is not principled, but he's got a lot of people talking to him and telling him, hey, you know, it's probably not in America's interest to erect all these trade barriers and everything else. And so what could he do if he could get China to go along with his plan, right? He says, okay, you, China, you, you take care of North Korea by putting all this pressure on it, basically helping North Korea to collapse under its own weight because it's, it's a communist dictatorship. And this totalitarian sort of dictatorship, it, unless they introduce some controls or they rely, excuse me, introduce some freedom, introduce some freedom or rely on China, who has introduced some small sectors of freedom and is keeping it going there. China will, I mean, excuse me, North Korea will collapse under its own weight, but China's been assisting it. And in some ways we could talk about, you know, we are maybe assisting China in a way that's not good by trading it in a certain way that we are. Um, I've talked about some of those issues in the past, but the point is, you know, here's, here's Trump. Trump is going to solve this problem and he's going to pretend that he's giving up something by refraining from instituting these harsh trade barriers or whatever. And, um, you know, it's a, it's a, so for instance, I'm reading the paragraph from the New York Times article. It says, uh, Mr. Trump's visit to China is the stiffest test yet of an audacious but characteristic bet. And this is the bet that Trump's making, according to the Times. They say, if he cultivates Mr. Xi and offers him concessions like delaying punitive trade moves, he can persuade the Chinese leader to move against the North in a way that none of his predecessors have. So um, now the Chinese know probably that basic economic theory says that we would be shooting ourselves in the foot if we made, quote, punitive trade moves, as, as the Times puts it. So we're not actually giving up anything. However, what Trump is doing is he's trying to maybe sell a certain pressure group, the pressure group that wants these punitive trade moves because they're irrational, they, you know, they think it's going to help them, I guess, in the short term. Little do they know how much wealth it would destroy to institute these, these punitive trade moves. Um, but, you know, sell it on the idea that, well, we have to give this up in order to get help with North Korea, which is arguably a mess. I mean, it definitely is a mess. So, I mean, it would be amazing if he could get it, but I think that the Chinese are very smart and they know that if we agreed not to make these punitive trade moves, we wouldn't be giving up anything. So it's not a trade at all. He's basically going to try to get two things. Uh, he would 
in effect, be excused from making those punitive trade moves, which he promised as a way to get elected by certain pressure groups within his base. He'd get out of having to do it, deliver on that, and at the same time, maybe solve the North Korea problem if he could get this. This is not principled America first move, right? Because if you were actually following a principle of American rational self-interest, you wouldn't say, hey, I'll give up these punitive trade moves if you solve my problem that I created over here. Um, you would be doing this in a, in a very different way. Um, you know, maybe you'd say, okay, well, we're, you, know, you need to stop trading with them. Why? Because they are a rights violator. And then we're going to stop trading with you. Why? Because you are a rights violator and you are an enabling these people. But the punitive trade moves, unless they are done for reasons of rights violations and not for pragmatist reasons, it's, it's not a principled thing. It is just, it's, it's a very warped application of America first. What does America first mean at this moment? It means giving up all those things that he promised to do in the election, China's big, bad, and evil. And suddenly China is the greatest thing because we are hoping to get them to help us with North Korea. Another example of Trump doing this sort of thing was out there on Twitter this last weekend. I don't know if you remember on Saturday, I believe it was, Trump had tweeted out that he was hoping an IPO from a Saudi Arabian company called Aramco, which I believe is an oil company. They were going to do an IPO. He wanted it to be on the stock exchange, New York Stock Exchange. And that would somehow be a boon for us if, this if you know Saudi Arabia was to list this and then a few days later you know we hear all the news of the crackdown King Salman and the crown prince of Saudi Arabia having this huge crackdown there and I think 500 plus people being locked up yes in a posh hotel as a jail and everything but nonetheless the you know they're they're being captured locked up as the result of so-called secret investigations so it's dubious in terms of due process or anything else. And Trump is out there tweeting that he has confidence. He says, I have great confidence in King Salman and the crown prince of Saudi Arabia. They know exactly what they are doing. And then he had a second tweet, which I'll just have to paraphrase for you because I did my response to the first tweet. The second one, he talks about that some of the people that have been rounded up, some have been quote, milking the country for years. Now, you know, some people joke back, well, Donald Trump, you've been milking because you declared bankruptcy all these times. And you could, you know, do a little hypocritical criticism of him. But, you know, at, at the same time, what he, he's talking about knowledge of some people and that he has great confidence. You don't have confidence on the basis of, of secret investigations. These are secret investigations. Now, they said it had to be secret because they didn't want high level people to get away with things simply because they were, you know, royalty or other sort of uh, eminent types in Saudi Arabia. I don't know what the whole class structure looks like there, but they have royalty and other high level people and they've rounded a number of these people up and they, Oh, well, we don't want them to be exempted from justice. And so we have to have secret investigations. Everybody should be getting due process. Why he's tweeting about this. Why is he tweeting about this? Because it's in some Americans' interests, apparently, some pressure group's interests, to have this IPO on the stock exchange. That's my reading of it. 
And when I tweeted that out there, it's interesting. There were a few people from Saudi Arabia who started following me and saying, yeah, this seems sort of like it's a done deal. It's really kind of a messed up thing. So that was, that was interesting because that's what you sense is that it's all about pressure groups. It's all about what some subset of Americans demand. It is not principled. It's not based on any sort of intellectual uh, criteria. John in the chat room says, shouldn't we make our decisions based consistently on principle and not pick and choose depending on financial gain? Yes, exactly. And I just don't see that it is in America's interest to have our president tweeting out there that he has great confidence in this king who is engaging in effect in a purge as far as we can tell due process, you know, how, how does Trump have great confidence that they know exactly what they're doing? Why is it the great confidence is that he's trying to get this IPO from it? That's that's kind of my read. So that's just another example. So in the chat room, oh, people are asking, was I in the Air Force? No, I was never in the Air Force. I was just a civilian employee at the Air Force. But at the time, you know, I really did like a lot of what I was doing. I loved interacting with the cadets. I liked what I was teaching. I actually had a fair amount of, you know, sort of free latitude in what I was teaching. They would have the core ethics class and almost, you know, I I would say at least three quarters of the lessons planned out on, you know, material that I had to teach them. So I did have to teach them just war theory, but also part of that required core was just a lot of good stuff. So you had uh, Plato and Aristotle and Kant and Mill, just basic philosophy that it was good to expose the cadets to. And I, for example, I used to be able to just um, do a whole lecture, an hour off the top of my head from Kant's groundwork of the metaphysics of morals and the four different arguments that he gives for the categorical imperative and how it works. And it was, it, it, it was fun. It was, it was really fun to do. Uh, then I was allowed to also teach Rand alongside. So I would devote, you know, one or two classes to Rand alongside everything else. And they all knew that I did. And, you know, we gave our syllabi to the head of the department, got promoted there, even though I had these objectivist views and things, what they didn't like would be for somebody to go out there in the media and be outspoken, which is some of the things that I value doing now. So yeah, I could publish academically, one time I published an op-ed about privacy and, and the connection between privacy and property, but I wasn't allowed to use my title as either assistant or associate professor at the Air Force Academy in, in publishing these things. Even something as innocuous as, as something privacy-related, where I'm just talking about my abstract theory of privacy. So there were there were restrictions in that sense but you know in, in general if i had wanted to keep an academic career that was actually a, a pretty good place because they also valued other things that i liked to do which you know sports and competing in sports and i was competing a lot at the time and i was able to share that with a lot of the cadets because the cadets are very well rounded they also do sports and then have intellectual interests and stuff so in some ways it's a great community in terms of the just war theory that most of the faculty not only taught but believed in but and promoted that that was not so good and as i said the environment that promoted religion wasn't so let me go into sort of my connection between just war theory and 
how it is that this scumbag um, Kelly got the gun or the the multiple guns that he did. He was not supposed to be able to legally purchase a gun. And one thing that came out fairly fairly early on after this atrocity was the fact that the Air Force hadn't followed certain procedures. So I've got this Washington Post article. I guess it's just from yesterday, but the, you know they say they didn't follow their policies. The Air Force said it failed to follow policies for alerting federal law enforcement about scumbag guy violent past and this enabled the former service member who killed you know at least 26 churchgoers they say in to obtain firearms before the shooting rampage they say that he should have been barred from purchasing firearms and body armor because of his domestic violence conviction in 2014 while serving at Holloman Air Force Base in New Mexico he was sentenced to a year in prison kicked out of the military with a bad conduct discharge following two counts of domestic abuse. Quote, initial information indicates that Kelly's domestic violence offense was not entered into the National Criminal Information Center database, uh, someone named Stefanik from the Air Force had said. Uh, there was a statement that they released. Secretary of the Air Force Heather Wilson and Chief of Staff David Goldstein have directed an investigation and see what was going on with the relevant policies and procedures how is it how in the world is it that this guy ended up not being registered so it was more than just this that he, there was a domestic violence offense and there was this the more of the story has come out subsequently and i've got this other from the new york times texas gunman once escaped from a mental health facility they say he escaped from a psychiatric hospital while he was in the air force he was caught a few miles away by local police. They were told that he had made death threats against his superiors. So it's more than just domestic violence. He had made death threats against his superiors and tried to smuggle weapons onto his base. That episode came to light yesterday. They say this is another in a series of red flags about the threat that he posed to those around him. They say, but none of the warnings stopped Kelly from legally purchasing several firearms, including the rifle that he used to kill poor innocent people on Sunday. So how in the world is it that all of these things went on and they knew about him and then they didn't put him in the database and they didn't put him in the database? I do believe that the infusion of altruism into the Air Force, which is, I think, in part, due to the teachings of the just war theory, but I think it's also because as Matt also acknowledged the air force in particular has a heavy religious component. So the idea could be he's reformed perhaps, you know, we know that he's got this interesting sort of mixed past with regard to religion. Maybe he told some people, Oh, I'm going to go and I'm going to pray and I'm going to redeem myself and everything else. And they believe in the ability of this to happen and then not, follow the procedure. It's going to be interesting to see exactly why it is. If there's a person that you could point to and a decision-making process that that person had, or was it some kind of weird clerical oversight? But how could you not, if you are the Air Force, how could you not have, you know, make your list and check it five times with regard to a scumbag like this? 
I, I just don't understand that they would not want to let somebody like this fall through the cracks. It's not just, a, and from what I understand, domestic violence, it was, you know, uh, harming the, the wife or the partner and then also um, blows to the skull of a kid, horrible stuff. And I guess he was in confinement for a year and then the, he had the discharge, but he was in the psych hospital. He escaped, tried to smuggle guns, trust weapons onto a base, death threats against superiors. How in the world with all of these different opportunities, each time people failed to put him on the relevant list? It is, it's bizarre. And I think you've got to look at the culture in the Air Force in general. And this is why, you know, again, it was very easy for me to look at that sweatshirt and just say, okay, no, this thing does not spark joy. It's, it's out of here. Um, and that's, that's what I did. Uh, I've got another call. I'm going to go ahead and grab it right now. Hi, you're on the air. Who's this? Hi, Amy. Uh, John Kenny, Carson City. How are you doing, John? Uh, oh, okay. Uh, I just want to give an answer to your question. Uh, during the Obama administration, one of the themes was they did not want to uh, make a, an ex-con or an ex-psycho or a criminal have difficulty getting a job when they're on the outside. And I think mm-hmm. there were some executive orders or laws, I can't remember what, when they actually made it illegal to ask about one's criminal record on employment applications. Mm-hmm. Okay? I mean, that mm-hmm. was a the theme. That was a the theme. Now, the head of the Air Force was appointed by Obama, mm-hmm. uh, a, a woman who would never, according to Michael Savage, never flew an airplane, you know. Uh, but mm-hmm. Obama has the talent of uh, sensing fellow Alinsky Marxists and uh, people in line with his thinking. So my guess is when uh, the choice was given, do we report this guy into the national uh, basis, they said no, because our leader doesn't want to disadvantage anybody from because it, just because they have a criminal record. That's my guess. Yeah, criminal record or quote mental health issues. You don't want yeah. to ru- you know ruin their whole life and everything. But at a, at a certain point, when somebody commits actions that shows that that person is a danger to people around them. How in the world? I mean, this is a military that is supposed to be protecting us. And from what I understand, I didn't put the article in in the program notes, but I saw an article saying that this is not a problem confined solely to the Air Force, that other branches of the military as well have a similar issue, that they will, you know, give members of the military some sort of a pass. Now, part of it could be as well. They have this idea, well, these people who enlist in the air force or the Marines or the army, you know, Navy, whatever, that they are quote sacrificing. And so then morality is completely out the window. If you think, okay, well, these people are sacrificing. So why don't we sacrifice a little for them? You know, if they're sacrificing for our country, why don't we sacrifice justice a little with respect to them? And what you don't realize is that if you have a military that is run properly and that doesn't go do, you know, humanitarian missions or suicidal missions or anything else, that it's not a sacrifice at all to 
right. enter the military, right? It's not a sacrifice. And so it's not like you owe them some kind of sacrifice in return. And so, okay, well, you know, you helped us out and we'll look the other way with respect to your domestic violence conviction or the death threat to it. I can't believe death threat to a superior and they're going to look the other way and not put it on a list. It is bizarre that they don't have double and triple checks of things like this. You agree? Yeah, well, well, sure. Uh, but the question is how many other people uh, are just like that? I'm, I'll, I, my guess is there's hundreds or uh, at least dozens who were not reported into that uh, gun check uh, base because I think it was uh, the general policy of the Obama people and all his, the people he appointed were to let, uh, let these criminals go. And I, I don't know if it's altruistic or it's part of the Alinsky agenda to get psychos and criminals out into the community. Okay. Well, and, and what, why why do they, they need want. to do that? Why why you know Obama's doing this in the service of instituting a socialist state. So in the end, it's ultimately because of sacrifice. It's all sacrifice for the group. Well, yeah, but the immediate thing is it's one of the uh, points on uh, the Alinsky agenda. I mean, I'll tell you, I. The last day of Obama's administration, I happened to be watching Scott Pelley on CBS. I don't know. I got rid of my TV, but his eyes are welling up. His voice is cracking because uh, Barack Obama just let out 390-some criminals out oh, of the wow. jail. Oh, and, and, wow. And Scott, Pel- Scott Pelley, is, his voice is cracking and says, we have an example of Barack Obama's great mercy and compassion and feeling for the underprivileged. I, it was unbelievable. I, you know, he soon got fired. But uh, obviously, this is part of the Alinsky agenda, get criminals out into the community to cause chaos. That's the story. That's the reality. But Scott Pelley's uh, saying how, how merciful and feeling Barack Obama was. Now, see, that and that's that that's what I think. That's what I think actually went on in the Air Force. Not so much the Alinsky yeah. as as that this was the way to be merciful. And you know, again, particularly in the Air Force, there was a whole. I don't know if you remember hearing about all the scandals around religion influence in the Air Force Academy in Colorado Springs. Again, Mickey Weinstein, Mikey Weinstein, I think is the way that Matt pronounced it, uh, is this guy who had to end up, you know, getting in a fight with the Air Force Academy over religion how much there was like a religious litmus test within the air force and everything so it's it was really really influential there and i think that then you know their justification would be that they're showing mercy that they're letting god be the judge of the person not them and and so that was part of it too but i also believe that the teaching of just war theory in the classroom to all of these officers reinforces that altruist mentality sure. and this idea that you know this idea that military service is about sacrifice and so it's you know this sacrifice here exchange for that sacrifice there and how about i was going to say jordan peterson i'm going to tell you about him later i i picked up a phrase from jordan peterson how about no right how about no sacrifice of anybody in the military that military service is not a sacrifice that you are taking some risk but you're doing it because of a higher value. And that's assuming that the military is run properly. 
John, I got to zoom because I want to talk about this last topic that I have, which is one that's okay. being requested. The the idea of the you know the tally of the church victims, including a, a fetus. I want to touch on that a bit. Okay. Anything else before I Thanks let you go? Thanks a lot, Amy. No. Okay. okay. Take care. Thanks we'll talk again. Bye. Okay, great. Bye. Okay. So as I said, over at the blog, don'tletitgo.com is where you get all the program notes and the last substantive item that I have there to. Yeah, I'll also talk a little bit about Peterson in a second, but I've got this article from the Times explaining why it is that in this horrible Sutherland Springs atrocity, they included in the tally of the victims a fetus. And what they explain is that Texas is one of at least 38 states with a law that recognizes a fetus in utero as a potential crime victim separate from the mother. Or they say where if it's not considered as a separate victim from the mother, nonetheless, stiffer penalties apply when crimes are committed against pregnant women. Uh, federal law also recognizes unborn fetuses as separate victims of federal and military crimes. Now, all this, as I understand it, came to pass under the younger Bush. And just out of a coincidence, Years ago, I was asked to review a book called Natural Rights and the Rights, Right to Choose. Natural Rights and the Right to Choose. You may have heard me talk about this book on the show before. A guy named Hadley Arks, A-R-K-E-S. You can look it up in Amazon. By the way, in Amazon, I believe they quote my review out of context. Like they try, you know, I'll talk about one positive thing. But this is overall, this book sort of lays out the blueprint of how you can change the law incrementally, like state law, federal law with respect to fetuses, change it incrementally so that eventually you can set up an overturn of Roe versus Wade. Because one of the things in Roe versus Wade that the courts did, they did this elaborate balancing test. And one of the elements of the balancing test was how does the existing law treat fetuses? And if the existing law treats fetuses as having rights, or a lot of the existing law treats fetuses as having rights, then that is one factor that tells you that the state has a high interest, you know, a high level of interest in, quote, protecting potential life or however they put it. You know, the, the court in Roe versus Wade did not want to answer the hard question, which was, when do rights begin? You know, we could talk about life like pro, you know life sustaining processes begin for an embryo and a fetus very early but when do rights begin is a whole separate question uh, i was having an interesting discussion with robert he's a listener and he's been hanging out here in the chat room i don't know if his lunch is over he i think he was taking his lunch so it might be that he's not listening now but we were having a good discussion on facebook about this and he agrees with me that even if you want to go ahead and give stiffer penalties for injuries to pregnant women that also injure the fetus or, you know, kill the the fetus and and the pregnant woman, even if you're going to give stiffer penalties for that, that doesn't necessarily serve as a contradiction to the right to choose an, an abortion. And the way that I think about it, and I think Robert agrees, is that insofar as a pregnant woman is choosing to carry this fetus, she is stating through her conduct that it is her intention to bring this fetus to term, to, you know, take this potential and make it an actual. But that says nothing with respect to the the woman's rights 
to terminate that pregnancy. And for me, you know, when you talk about abortion, right, there, there's two things to talk about. One is, do you think it should be legal? And if you do think it should be legal, how long throughout the term of a pregnancy do you think it can, should continue to be legal? That's one question. And then the separate question is, at what stages in a pregnancy and for what reasons do you think an abortion would be moral? And I think any rational person would say that it would be immoral to carry, you know, a fetus all the way till the end. And it's like a perfectly healthy fetus. And suddenly you're just going to abort it for no good reason at all. There, you, if, if you're going to abort, it would be in your interest. It would be in anybody's interest, right? Because you have this being that could experience pain and you don't want anything that's living or potentially living or whatever. You don't want anything to experience pain if you can avoid it, right? You are a, an empathetic person. So if you're going to abort, you would do it as early, as soon as possible. It's safer for you, you know, for everybody else. So that's morality. In terms of what you would do for legality, maybe you're going to say, okay, well, let's cut the line off at viability. And by viability, you'd say, you know, you can take the, you know, remove the fetus and it would be perfectly self-sustaining on its own. You know, it wouldn't need some sort of heroic, extraordinary medical equipment or something to, to keep it alive. Um, you know, third trimester at some point in the third trimester, I guess. But, you know, you figure out where to draw this line. Why? Because the relevant point is the being surviving as a separate entity, as an individual. It's rights belong to individuals, not to potential entities, not to parts of entities. It's an individual human being. And, and so that's where I would draw the line. I don't think that, you know, when, when the mother or the potential mother, right, you've got, there's a woman and she's pregnant and she's carrying this fetus. She's in effect giving her, you know, sort of uh, ratification to the idea that this is potentially going to become a human being and that it's a value to her as well. It's the value to her of this potential that she intends to have as a child. So I don't see any contradiction there, but Texas is one of the few states that does this. And one of the reasons that they are doing this is because they want to use this sort of law to help overturn Roe versus Wade. The other sorts of things that they talked about in that blueprint that's in this Hadley Arcs book is having Medicaid, for instance, provisions in Medicaid that treat fetuses as human beings, uh, you know, with the same access to benefits or however you want to use the language in, in Medicaid, some sort of entitlements. If fetuses are treated as equally entitled as the pregnant women, for example, in the Medicaid law, that's going to be one more thing that the next court that is asked to reconsider Roe versus Wade, that's just going to get thrown into the balancing test. It's just a huge pragmatic balancing test that is saving us in the Roe versus Wade thing. And under Bush and in some of the conservative states, they have been following this, this blueprint. Robert in chat room says, for the legal question, even viability is debatable because the capability of being individuated isn't the same as being an individual. Yes. But at the same time, right, then you wonder if basically it's, it's right at the end and there's certain stages at which 
you have to remove it entirely before you can kill it or something. So there is this period, this time when it is actually an individual or it would be an individual except for just the umbilical cord is there. So something very late term, I, I'm at least, you know, we, I have a number of topics where I say, okay, you know, go have a glass of wine or beer, I might reconsider that. Uh, but, you know, discuss whatever this is and try to figure out where, but we know what the principle is. The principle is individuals. And have you reached a stage of a pregnancy where you have to deliver the fetus entirely live? And at that point, it could be sustainable on its own, breathe on its own and everything outside the the womb, and then you kill it. That sort of thing, right? Um, it's, it's dicey. It gets, it gets a little bit dicey. So I'm, I'm more open to that. We know where the, you know, where the line has to be drawn. It's like, when does somebody become an adult and capable of making a contract or consenting to sexual activity or anything else? 18 years of age, is that the age? Is, should it be 21? Should it be 16? We would try to figure out where, where to draw the line with respect to, to certain things. And, and it's a debate to have. Thankfully right now, right the technology is so good that if your concern, if you could become pregnant, is that you don't want to, for example, bring a Down syndrome child into the world, there are genetic tests that can be done so early, 10 weeks or something, with nothing more than a blood test that can rule out these horrible birth defects. And it makes it easier and easier to, if you're interested in you know, getting an abortion because of some real cause like this, there's no excuse to be waiting. You test early, you figure it out, you get it done. And it's not just because you're causing pain to a fetus. It's for your own health. The later a woman carries, I mean, think about the emotional trauma too. Why expose yourself to the emotional trauma, but the physical trauma of it as well. Josh in the chat room says, if it's iffy about being viable, it should just be delivered and let it try to survive on its own. That sounds awfully cruel. I don't know. I'd, I'd want to have some sort of a line where people know what the, the medical situation is. There's pain being experienced there. It doesn't mean the thing has rights, right? That, you know, so it, it's, this is not a great and fun topic. Topic. John in the chat room says, what is important is the party affiliation of the fetus. Okay. I think we're, we're pretty much done with this topic. So, Run over to, like I said, the blog, don'tletitgo.com, if you want to check out any of the things that I've talked about on today's show. At the end, yeah, I've got a musical selection there. But I also have a link to a full three-hour discussion that I listened to several days ago. It was after this show last week that this aired live. Jordan Peterson with Dave Rubin. There is just so much that is good in there. Yes, he's critical of Rand, and I would like to have a discussion with him and sort of press him a little. Not that I would change his mind completely, but maybe, you know, just ask him some of the basis for, for what he does and ask him to consider certain things. It'd be a you know, place for discussion. Even, you know, taking into account the fact that he is critical of, of Rand, mostly as a, a literary figure, Nonetheless, there's a lot of value to be had there. There's a, a lot of good ideas, in, you know, just in terms of psychology. And he also talks about some issues in politics and culture as well. I think you will really enjoy it and get value from it. I'm hoping maybe at some point I could get him on as a guest. 
anybody in the chat room? I didn't see anything else. No, we got all of the, the things done. I've got a couple minutes until the technical show time is over, but I've said pretty much what I have to say to you guys. So I'm going to go ahead and call it a day here. Uh, like I said, go check out the, the program notes and everything else. And I will talk to you next week. It'll be again Wednesday, 3 p.m. Eastern time, 12 noon Pacific. Until then, take care. Let's chat on you know the various social media. Feel free. I'm sure that the debate about the existence of God is ongoing over on the Twitter feed. Maybe it's done by now. I don't know. But you could dive in and, and restart it. You could have an excellent time this afternoon. And now you've got 280 characters in which you could do it as well. So you can actually have a little bit more of a, a substantive discussion if you want to dive in. So take care, everyone. I will talk to you next week. And uh, bye. If you only have a 401k, you're not getting the most for retirement. Wait, what? Add a Robinhood IRA on top, then they'll boost it by 3%. You can do that? And if you transfer in any retirement account, you get 3% on top of that. Is there a limit to the match? No limit. Robinhood Gold gets you the biggest contribution match of any IRA on the market. Sign up for Robinhood Gold at Robinhood.com boost by April 30th. Subscription fees apply. Investing involves risk. 3% match requires gold for one year from first match. Must keep IRA for five years. Match on transfers subject to additional terms and conditions. Robinhood Financial LLC, member SIPC. Tax day is coming. Oh, no. But if you sign up for Robinhood Gold's IRA with a 3% match, you can get up to $195 for the 2023 tax year. Oh, yeah. Sign up at Robinhood.com slash boost by tax day to get the biggest contribution match on the market. Subscription fees apply. You know you Investing involves risk. 3% match requires gold for one year from first match. Must keep IRA for five years. Robinhood Financial LLC, member SIPC.